You can turn in the book of Genesis to Genesis chapter 47. Our Old Testament reading comes from Genesis 47, verses 13 through 31. You can find that on page 41 of the Pew Bible. Genesis 47, starting in verse 13, we'll read to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes, for our money is gone? And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of our livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of the Egyptian for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and the harvests you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, as food for yourselves and your household, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob and the years of his life were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Ascends the reading of God's holy word. You turn in the Gospel of Matthew to chapter 10. Entering upon the second great discourse in Matthew's Gospel proper, we looked at the setting last week and saw that Christ gives his authority to continue his mission. And here we 
see him instructing his servants most severely, as he uses this word command, on how to carry out his ongoing mission to the lost, his ongoing ministry to lost sheep. So we come to verse 5 and we'll read through verse 15. This is God's word. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Father, prepare our hearts now to receive uh, this word. Open our eyes, our Lord, to the excellencies of our King and your ongoing work down to this very day, all of which so plainly demonstrates your wisdom and your power and your goodness, your grace and your mercy, your righteousness and your justice. Indeed, all that you are, Lord, is on display in all that you do. And so we ask, Lord, now for the eyes to see and the hearts to receive that we may benefit from our King and from the blessings that he brings, receiving them by faith and growing in that faith, Lord, which you are pleased to work in our hearts. So attend the reading and the preaching of your word with that wonderful influence of the Holy Spirit. Be pleased, O Lord, to make it an influence unto life. We ask in Christ's name, amen. It's not uncommon for companies or organizations to talk about a change in mission or values. Maybe you've been a part of a a business that has abruptly shifted. What they once were, they no longer are going to do. And that's what they mean. They mean a former generation did one thing, but in the light of the times, we're going to do this other thing now, for one reason or another, they change their mission. They're free to do this as they see fit. So often they annoy their employees and their customers, especially the loyalists. The church has no such liberty. We have received a mission, and it is the mission of the king, indeed, our God, That doesn't mean the church hasn't tried to change her mission. She has, and she has done so to her own destruction. 
When she abandons the king's mission, she ceases to be the king's agent. But the king strictly commissions and details what the nature of the mission is going to be. The mission of the church is simple and unchangeable because it is the mission of the head of the church, the king of this kingdom. As one pastor puts it well and simply, Christ's mission is to rescue the lost and disciple the found. So we hear Christ saying, at least in part, at this early stage of the mission starting to creep outwards. We find the Lord giving instructions at this early stage. We're struck that it is an early stage. There's some unique features about these instructions that are later going to change very explicitly. So it's worth reflecting that while some of the particulars have changed since Christ has come, the heart remains the same. The heart of the mission is the same. The mission is the same because this king is still engaged in the same work, namely gathering the lost as God's great gift to the lost. And from this we see both what the Lord is doing to and for us and what the Lord is doing through us as his church, as those whom he has been pleased to find and then to utilize in increasing the ranks of the found. This is both encouraging to us as we are in need of constant reminder that the Lord has not ceased working among us. He did not do something long ago and then stand back, as it were. His ministry to the lost, to us, continues down to this very day. And we already start to see that here. Because these apostles are sent, and in that sense, Christ is absent from them, and they are doing their work. We're being prepared even in a very early way for his earthly absence and yet his ongoing ministry. So it's encouraging to us to be reminded that just because Christ is bodily absent does not mean that he is not active. In this picture of the vision, he encourages us that indeed he is still active, though he is absent in a very important way. He also instructs us how we are to respond to his activity, how we are to receive it, to rejoice in it, and even to participate in it as we would seek to further it, praying, Thy kingdom come. So let's consider this early stage of the king's mission and how he would have us respond to it, rejoice in it, and participate in it. So first, we see that it is a mission to rescue the lost. Second, we see that it is a long-promised mission. 
Third, we see that it is a powerful mission. Fourth, we see that it is an urgent mission. And fifth, we see that it is a mission of, in, of eternal importance. Five points. I hope you don't have evening plans. <laughs> First, it is a mission to rescue the lost. He profiles this reality of those after whom he sends the disciples explicitly. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now for the moment, set aside the fact that it's just restricted to Israel and highlight for a moment the lost and helpless condition of those after whom he sends them. To be a sheep is to be intensely vulnerable. To be a lost sheep is to be almost certainly destroyed. And that in a grisly manner. Those after whom the Lord sends his apostles are as vulnerable as Mary and Pippin being hauled off by the orcs. Halflings in the midst of monsters. They cannot help themselves. There's no way for them to fight themselves free. Apart from rescue, they are certain to perish, and that in a dreadful way. Let that be a small stake in every version of the gospel where we somehow participate in salvation in an active way. That's an overstatement, but I trust you see in the light of the picture I'm drawing what I mean there. God saves! It is a rescue of the most dramatic variety. He doesn't do 90% or 99%. He saves. Salvation is from the Lord. He highlights this condition of those after whom he sends the disciples to motivate and to drive their hearts on in pity and compassion and tenderness. And in this way, he continues his mission as the Son of Man who came to seek and to save the lost. Those who are wandering like sheep unto the destruction of their souls. So if you stand here in the presence of the Lord rejoiced, you've been retrieved from certain destruction worse than your mind can conceive of. We can note from this that the Lord's heart has not changed towards sinners, even down to this very day. Even in his state of glory, this is his heart towards sinners. You can read Thomas Goodwin's Heart of Christ and bask in an entire meditation on this wonderful fact. In fact, the rescue of the lost, the scope of the lost, would only increase in proportions from this point on. For by the time of his resurrection and on the cusp of his ascension, it wasn't just the lost sheep of Israel. It was the lost the world over. The message of the gospel, the message of salvation, this rescue was to begin in Jerusalem, going unto Judea, Samaria, indeed unto the ends of the earth. It is this mission that goes down to this very day from which we draw the conclusion that Christ's heart is the same to this very day. Though he has entered a glory that staggers the imagination. 
Consider his excellencies on display in that. Consider how far your mind is from the weak and the helpless and the lowly when you were in the throes of glory. We've talked about this before. When you were at the feast, the furthest thing from your mind is the funeral. Christ is in glory, and yet his heart continues to be one which is enormous towards sinners. Be convinced from this that you can run to Christ as a sinner. The devils will continue to try to convince you otherwise, as Apollyon did to Christians. If you strive to serve Christ faithfully, the devils will say it's not faithfully enough. If you stumble into sin, they will say he does not tolerate such shortcomings. If you're momentarily deranged and sin willfully, they will say you are well beyond his care and concern. Let the plain word of Christ on display in this early stage of his mission towards lost sheep put all of their lives to rest as he says, I came to seek the lost. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And you find refrains of encouragement in that? If you can't, it's because you don't know yourself. Or if you won't, it's because you don't know yourself. If you can't, perhaps you're submitting to the lies, the enemy. That his truth is greater than their lies. It shines forth with more plainness than their darkness, beloved. Christ is a heart which is enormous towards sinners. Further, we ought to be convinced as Christians that while we have returned to the shepherd, a vulnerable sheep, we remain. Sometimes we get confused about this. We think that we were once sheep and now we've been transformed into lions. Now that we've been brought into the fold. Peter rejoices in our return and presses upon us our ongoing vulnerability. In one fell swoop, you were straying like sheep, but have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. Straying sheep you were, sheep you continue to be, the shepherd you continue to need. It is not as if now you can fight orcs left to your own Strength, your strength continues to be the prowess of the shepherd, beloved. The strength and the excellency of the king. Stray not from his side. Cling to his garments like a child grasping a father's hand. For where he is, you are safe. Second, this is a long-promised mission. He tells them that they must not go for now to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Lord's earthly ministry was almost exclusively to Israel. We see flashes here and there in his ministry that indeed this gospel is going to go beyond Israel, as indeed the Old Testament prophets themselves foretold. But let's not miss God's faithfulness to the promises that he made to a specific historical people. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
He is the God of David. He is the God of the prophets. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And his faithfulness to that very specific people is here on display in that he sends his son to them. His favor uniquely given to this historical people here blossoms in the appearance of God among his people. And this is no small testimony to the God who is faithful to keep his word. That's perhaps one of the chief benefits that we can draw from that observation. God is always faithful to his word. It doesn't matter how long ago he said, it doesn't matter how slow you think he is in keeping his word. He always keeps his word. Jesus has already pressed that upon our hearts. He says, not one dot of God's word is going to pass away without being fulfilled. Heaven and earth are going to pass away. God's word will not pass. It's more sure than the mountains. It's more sure than the waves of the sea. Children, did you know that God always keeps his word? We have God's word in the Bible, children. Did you know that? Are you learning how to read your Bible? Maybe you have a little daily Bible plan or a little daily Bible book where you're just starting to learn how to, how to come to God's word and to, to read it. Well, when you read that Bible, you can know that that's the very word of God and God's word is always true. I know your parents usually do what they say. God always does what he says, children. One of the loveliest things you can do is read God's word, and you can say, this is true, because God has said it. And he always does what he says. Second, we can mark again that God is beholden to no one. We hear him choosing in his severe justice to continue the time of letting the nations go in their ignorance. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. And we're humbled in the light of that. We're reminded that he is beholden to no one. That God would be perfectly just in saving no one, beloved. He would be perfectly just in letting the entire course of sinful man run its hell-bound race and leaving them to it. It's important to remember that as R.C. Sproul was frequently found to be saying, the wonder is truly to be seen and that God saves anyone. It's through that humble acknowledgement that God is beholden to no one that we are postured to marvel that God so freely exposes his grace and mercy to everyone. God's ways are not our ways, beloved, but they are good, and they are just, and they are holy always, because he can do nothing else, because that's who he is. And third, we can mark that external privileges are real blessings, but they cannot be rested in. 
He calls Israel lost sheep. Israel, who had the oracles, who had the covenants, theirs were the promises, theirs were the patriarchs, theirs was the history. And yet, apart from Christ, apart from God's reign and grace, apart from that work of the Holy Spirit, which brought them to the king, they were lost sheep. We see from this that external privileges indeed are weighty blessings, but they cannot be rested in, beloved. There's an important word for the church in this. We have mighty blessings as well. We have displayed for us each week the abundance of God's love extended to the weak, indeed to sinners. We have God's word opened for us, read every week, preached every week. These are mighty blessings. There's great comfort and encouragement to be taken from them. There's nourishment to be received from these things. But these things in and of themselves are not to be rested in. Rather, they are to take you by the hand, lead you by the heart to the only one in whom you are to rest. Namely, the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Don't boast in your external privileges. Nobody's going to be able to plead how many Sundays they attended church. Nobody's going to be able to plead the sheer number of times they came to the table. Nobody's able to plead how thoroughly they memorized their catechism. The only thing you're going to be able to plead is the Lord Jesus Christ and that you belong to him in truth. Third, this is a powerful mission. It's a rescue mission, it's a long-promised mission, and it's a powerful mission. He sets this forth in the specific instructions that he gives to them in 7 and 8 as to what their primary activity is to be. And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse leopards, cast lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. The very power of heaven animates this mission. The power that flickers faintly as we behold the hosts of heaven, the vastness of the stars, which would have been a prompt to consider the magnitude of his power. That's the kingdom of heaven. And it animates this mission. And note the primacy of what they're called to do. All of the wonders are subordinate to one thing, preaching. For faith has always been by hearing God's word. As long as the age of faith continues, the declaration of the word of God is going to be the means by which the kingdom advances in power. This according to God's design. 
again, mark how easily confused we get over this. We think, where's the power on display in this instruction? Well, it's clearly in healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing the lepers. Those were demonstrations of the greater power. It was the declaration that God welcomes sinners. That God is pleased to accept sinners, establish them under his reign of life, keep them from the power of the enemy, and bring them unto the day of the full flourishing of his kingdom. That's power, beloved. We've remarked on this a number of times. The most powerful king who has ever reigned over a kingdom of earth was utterly powerless to affect any change in another person. Have you felt your impotency in this regard? You don't even need to let your eyes fall to other people. Mark how hard it is to change yourself. Go ahead, go try and form a new habit. Even just one that will be beneficial in an earthly sense. Try to drop a bad habit. Mark how impotent you are. Mark how limited your power is. So the fact that a reign here is being proclaimed wherein not just good earthly habits are instilled, but lives of love flourish. Where true love is generated. Faith, hope, and love, joy, righteousness, peace, taking place in truth, in the hidden person of the heart. That's power. And that's his kingdom, beloved. This is the message that continues to go forth in power. What does Paul say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. Elsewhere he writes, I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Just because it's hidden doesn't mean it's real. It isn't real. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not real, beloved. Go to war against your silly enlightenment brains. Hearken unto God's word, which says the kingdom advances in power through the proclamation of Jesus Christ, his victory over sin, his victory over the tyranny of the devil. The reign of God in grace and life into which he calls us all. I want to highlight one more element before we move on from this powerful mission observation. It strikes me that this was a challenging declaration and one that was intentionally challenging. He sums up his ministry to the lost with this same refrain which has continued from John the Baptist. John the Baptist picked it up, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus picked it up, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he gives his disciples the same message, kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a repeated refrain. And as this unfolds, it becomes clear that this is a message that's intended to challenge. 
because it's going to a people who were very interested in an earthly kingdom. And yet, the climax of God's blessing is a heavenly kingdom. A kingdom that's not to be understood in the terms and the conditions of this world. Not to be understood chiefly in a flourishing flock, a flourishing womb, diseases being expelled. Not chiefly, those things were intended to prompt us to the greater reality, not keep us anchored to the lesser, beloved. We must acknowledge our hearts' intense gravitation towards the lesser. Oftentimes we think, well, just heal the the sickness. That's what I really want. We'll raise the dead. That's what I really want. All the while not realizing that those particular manifestations of power were intended to tell us that the greater work is going on. That we're raised from the death of sin. That the tyranny from which we've been released isn't Rome, it's the devil's. And the reality of that work of grace continues to this very day and will continue until Christ returns and makes all things new, all in all. So fourth, this is an urgent mission. The Lord instructs them to take no provisions, neither money nor extra traveling goods, The second half of the discourse, starting in verse 9, going to the end, instructs them in the manner of how they're to carry out this mission. Generally, they're to take no provisions. Now, in part, we're instructed in this that Christ's servants as ministers are to walk by faith just as everyone else is to walk by faith. That's not a different set of standards and provisions that are made for his ambassadors. They're to learn dependence upon their heavenly father just as they are to preach that others learn dependence upon the heavenly father. There's a benefit in this because If in one sense ministers are held to a higher standard, in another sense we're reminded that ministers are no different from ordinary believers. And God has designed it this way so that our hearts go out towards one another. That your weaknesses provide a window into my weakness so you know how to pray for me. My weaknesses provide a window into your weaknesses so I know how to pray for you. If you're struggling with doubt and despair and despondency, you can be sure that I am struggling with that in my own way. And in this way, he inclines the sheep towards one another. Yet mark how often we see the infirmities as others occasion to despise them. Such cannot be, beloved. This must be a house which meets infirmities, sins, stumblings with tenderness. Weak weak people welcomed in mercy because we are all weak people. At one time or another, you're going to need an effusive 
an extensive portion of understanding, compassion, tenderness, patience. And so Christ says, prepare for that day by extending that understanding now. By extending that compassion now. Or to use the pithier sayings of the Lord, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The ministers are not held to some other sort of marching orders. They too are to cast themselves wholly in faith and to feel the unsettling vulnerability and difficulty of that as a sinner. But Calvin wants us to understand something more going on in these instructions, namely the no provision as highlighting the urgency of the mission. Essentially saying travel light. You're to be urged on by the fact that there are more people that need to hear this. You can't stay anywhere for long because there's lots of lost. Don't set up shop somewhere. Keep moving. It's like Aragorn instructing Legolas and Gimli to get rid of everything that is going to hinder them from moving fast. We have to cover a lot of ground. There's an urgency to our mission. We ought to feel something of the urgent need for the gospel to go forth. I admit there's tension in this, as gospel ministry is elsewhere described as sowing a seed. (laughs) I'm not a gardener, but I do know enough that it highlights the fact that you really can't rush that. (laughs) There's no prodding that on. You sow the seed and the sun has to do its work, the water has to do its work. And you're highlighting there just how utterly dependent you are on that mysterious and secret power of God. But in other places, as here, gospel ministry is presented as a rescue. Rescuing not just the ruined, but those who are precious. Again, a a lamb, a sheep, it would have evoked a sense of preciousness. Think about Nathan's parable to David, about the preciousness of the lamb that was stripped from this poor man. There was a tenderness there that existed between the owner. We heard it in Psalm 100, right? We are the sheep of your pasture. It goes beyond the relationship of simply owning livestock. So the urgency here that's set forth in the vision of the rescue of the precious lost ones is here pressed upon their hearts by their instruction to make haste because there are many lost and they need the beautiful feet that bring the gospel of good news. This makes sense to us. Imagine your child was in danger. It's a dreadful thought. I told you I can't 
watch disaster movies anymore as a father. It does something to me that it just didn't do to me when I didn't have children. I feel not just my own vulnerability, but their vulnerability in that. And it's like, well, forget it. I'll just go run 10 miles. <laughs> that's, that's less painful to me. If your child was in danger, it would generate a sense of urgency. There would be no leisure. There'd be no, I'll get around to it if I can. In a sense, much would clarify in terms of the relative importance. All that we think is important would somehow be seen finally for what it is because that which is most precious to you is in danger. There's a sense in which this mission encapsulates that urgency. Such should be something of our urgency to reach the lost, informing our prayers, informing our willingness to hazard looking foolish in the eyes of the world by sharing the hope of the gospel. This is always to be married with a trust in the Father's sovereignty and a trust in the Son's great heart, which we know will always far exceed ours towards lost sheep. For it is the shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. And so we come last to the observation that this is a mission of eternal importance. That's how he closes. He closes by highlighting the ambassadors bringing peace. That's how he instructs them concerning a greeting and peace. The vision here is that the king sends out ambassadors to go ahead of him as a coming king. And he brings not a word primarily of judgment. Notice that, that the word of judgment is a strange word or a secondary word. It is a word of blessing. I come to bring peace. That's how they greet everyone, regardless of how they're going to receive. It's the same gospel. It's the same Savior. It's the same King. They're publishing the good news of reconciliation with God. This gospel goes forth to a world in rebellion against the great King. And this world has received that that king has said, all is forgiven. My heart is favorably disposed towards sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. A warm and full welcome is indiscriminately extended to sinners. Come and receive of the boundless blessings of heaven. All are welcome. This is the message of the gospel. What's the call? Receive it. That's the call. Those who receive you. We're going to see this afternoon, if you can manage to stay awake. We're going to see this afternoon that the heart of saving faith is receiving 
and resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Here the worthy are designated not as those who have done something or another to distinguish themselves, but as those who receive the king's message. And by that prove this worth. This free message is extended to the sinful in flagrant ways, and the sinful in not so flagrant ways. And the call is the same. Receive this king and rejoice. And I would say so intense is God's earnest desire that people receive it that he sets forth the sternest warnings over what rejection will mean. We hear these words and we think, this is harsh, right? Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. But if you were a parent trying to retrieve your lost child, wouldn't you evoke every tonality of your authority to bring them out of ruin? You would seek to woo them, to persuade them, to plead with them such that they come home, such that they remove themselves from harm's way, such that they bring themselves back into light. And if they failed to heed that, wouldn't you rise up in sternness like Gandalf? Bilbo Baggins! Not out of cruelty, but to bring them to their senses. Can you hear the Father's heart on display even in the sternest warnings being issued now to those who reject the gospel of Christ? Every tonality at the Father's disposal being now levied in the gospel age of grace to convince the lost, to bring the lost into the saving arms of Christ? Greet them in peace. Go to them in gentleness. Go to them in lowliness. Warn them if they reject you that this is no gain. Do whatever you can to bring them to Christ. It's a dreadful word. It's a dreadful word. It will be more bearable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about that. Think about the fact that Sodom and Gomorrah already experienced one judgment in history, didn't they? And here he talks about another judgment that even Sodom and Gomorrah is going to have to undergo. Jerusalem's going to meet a similar fate. They're going to experience one judgment in terms of history, but even that's just a little bit of a window into the vista of the reality of that day of eternity. He leverages all of this he might bring sinners to a sight and sense of their ruin and a sight and sense of his provision in the king. Because the truth is that the heart of the son towards sinners is enormous. But beloved, that's the father's heart. the Son has truly revealed the Father. Hearing the gospel is a great privilege. It's one that demands a response, beloved. 
heed the gentleness with which it is made peace freely given to be received. But also hear the sobriety. It says those who reject it are in grave danger. May this be the day that you see the provision and you flee to him and know peace. Let's pray. Mm. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your plain word. We pray that it would land upon our hearts with the efficacy that the Spirit alone can work, that we might be made to benefit from it. To walk in humble reliance upon Christ's daily provision. To walk in humble joy and adoration that indeed you have opened up the storehouse of heaven's bounty and freely extended it unto us. Do these things and more, O Lord, for we ask in the name of Christ. Amen.